How many of the wives would have been enthralled and just so happy if the, if the oath and what, what the husband that day, the groom, said of you? I, I love doing weddings. It's one of, one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. Not the best, but pretty, it's, it's high up there. How, how, how romantic and beautiful would it be if the wife was thinking, that if, every, if you, you should just put yourself in the pew, pretend we, we were in something much more beautiful than this old shack of a building and, and we were at a wedding and the wife was there and the groom was there and it was all happening and, and in his vow he says, uh, you know what, you, you're enough. You're enough. You are, my love, sufficient. You'll do, in other words. How, how much romance would that just be inflamed in the heart of the bride right there and everybody listening? Would we have swooning awes and jabs, like, why don't you ever talk to me that way anymore? None of, none of that, of course, if we were to say that your wife is sufficient or she's enough, she'll do, right? And yet... And yet when we come to the book of Colossians, really the, the overarching theme, the, the, the overly infused message of the whole of the book is that Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient for everything. And, and, and we hear that and we're compelled, I think, probably from just Christian habitual sitting through sermons. Somebody says, Christ is enough. Your response is, Amen. But I think if we thought about it, it would be, no, duh. What do you mean he's enough? He's much more than enough. Don't insult Christ by saying he's sufficient. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a the, in, degrading thing to say of the Christ, God in flesh, the Messiah. He's enough. But of course, this is the, this is the constant temptation of Christians. This is the thing that we need to be reminded of, is that he is enough. He is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need added doctrines, added requirements, added rules, added shows of holiness. We just need Jesus. Colossians is this book. Colossians is written by Paul to those saints in Colossia saying that Christ is enough. He's, he's gloriously enough. He's, he's so extra, super sufficient. He's so much more than we need that therefore he is all that we need. It reminds me of... Uh, I think it's in all of grace. I can't remember, but at some point Spurgeon is talking about uh, uh, Paul uh, uh, writing down in 2 Corinthians and saying that in my suffering, God spoke to, spoke to me and said, my grace is sufficient for you. And for the first time reading, reading that, not reading it for the first time, but, but, but he'd read it many times, but then one time he read it and for the first time just started laughing. Now, what, is, what an almost silly thing to say that God's grace is sufficient for my need. That would be like he says, like a man with a cup standing on the, on the ocean shore in the ocean saying, my water supply is sufficient for your cup. Of course. How, how mathematically just irregular and obvious is it that yes, God's grace is sufficient for us and, and Christ is absolutely sufficient for us. It's so obvious that we forget it. It is so darn obvious that we need to be reminded frequently. And the book of Colossians is Paul writing to say, Christ is everything we need. He's the one through whom all of the purposes of God are, are being achieved. He's the one that has accomplished a final and full reconciliation between God and man through his death in our place and triumphant resurrection. He is the one thing that God has provided to bring salvation. He is the one thing we need. And then the book of Colossians is, is pretty much that in the first two chapters. And then the last two chapters is, so then how do we live in light of that? What does it look like to be a Christian who, who has received that Christ, the all-sufficient Christ, the, the glorious Christ, the infinite Christ, the reconciling Christ, the divine nature in mankind Christ? If that is all true, how then should we live? And so Colossians is very, very practical. It's, uh, it's going to be one of those ones that ends with, uh, with uh, the, the last two chapters of what to do in the household, what to do as a, in the workplace, what to do towards outsiders. It's a very, very practical book. And really the, the things that he's going to say is, how should we live? Well, we should live in defense against error. We should live in holiness against sin. We should live in love against selfishness. We should live on mission against a pessimistic self-centeredness. We should live in wisdom against Folly. We should live in all of these things because Christ is gloriously sufficient. One of the things you're going to see in the book of Colossians is, is a very high Christology. 
Christology is our study or knowledge or theology of Christ, the, the mediator. The, the, we, we usually divide it up into his person and his work and then subdivide it a bit further than that. His, his person, his two natures, who he is, how he is, all of that, and then what he did in his living and his dying and his rising and his reigning. The work, the person and work of Jesus Christ is, is central to this book, and it's so elevated in this book, he will give us a very high Christology, and yet it's, it's written to poor working-class Christians. And so that's the kind of, as much as we will know, that, 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 that if you're going to do a study in Christology in some of the highest theological levels, you're going to go to Colossians. It's rich with doctrinal meat, and yet it's written in everyday understandable language for the blue-collar Christian. Uh, the, the, the academic side of evangelicalism is truly one of the worst, most disinteresting, boring, heresy-involved, and, 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 uh, and algae-growing, just incestuous bunch of academics that you just don't want to get into. Don't ever go to Bible college. I'm, just, I'm coming out. I'm saying it. Don't. Just don't. Keep your faith Keep your Christianity, keep the Bible. You'll do better than going to most Bible colleges. But, of course, we need higher education, don't we? We, we need those men who are trained in depth. And I love that, that what Paul is giving to us is this depth of theology about Christ in a way that just lands straight on the ground, straight in the most practical of ways, and, as we'll see in a moment, in the midst of some controversy is the, is the context for his explanation. In other words, we've called this series... Christ for life. We need the true Christ. We need the whole Christ for our real life. There is all sorts of other Christs out there being peddled and pushed in, in seminaries and in academia and in cults and other versions of things. The, the effeminate Christ, the woke Christ, the left-leaning Christ, the liberal Christ, the far-right Christ, the whatever, the, the, the man but not fully God Christ, the God but not fully man Christ, and we reject it all. We want the real and true Christ so that we can then live the real and true Christianity. Amen? That is what the book of Colossians gives to us. Look at chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 and 2. That is our, our passage for this evening. Uh, <clears throat> I need to find myself actually first. I went to Ephesians. love to preach Ephesians. We're not going to preach Ephesians. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. So we're, here, we're starting out, we need, to, we need to get ourselves into the, 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 the context, and that is that Paul is writing to the Colossians. Now, that might be enough for some preachers to just say and move on, but you know who you're dealing with, so we've got a sermon to make out of these two verses. All right, Paul. Paul is writing to Colossians. Now, we do well, and, and some of you I know are new in the faith, and some of you are, uh, uh, have been walking with the Lord for a lot longer than I've been alive, multiple lifetimes for me, in fact, and you're well acquainted with the Apostle Paul, but we love Paul in this church. Amen? And he just had an amazing testimony. He was the, he was one of the one of really the, the Jewish mafia. Okay, you want you want a modern day application of I told the church plant this afternoon as a as a means to understand more of the book of Colossians and more of the life of Paul, go home and watch not the chosen but the Godfather. And in there, you'll, you'll meet with, some, with some, funny, some funny characters. And one of them is going to be Tommy, the, the lawyer for the, for the mob mafia family. And, and that's what I sort of think of as Paul. Paul was involved in the illegal executions of the Christians. You, you remember that it was illegal for Jews to, to, to do capital uh, punishment. You had to go through the, the Roman legal system to get somebody killed. That's why they took Jesus to, the, to uh, Pilate. That's why they, they, they took the apostles to the, um, to the Romans often throughout the book of Acts. Well, well not in the, in the early years under Paul. He had sort of found a way to sneak in and through and, and keep everything undercover. And he was kind of the, the lawyer for the, for the mob Jewish uh, 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 intelligentsia that was sent around to, to butcher people. Remember, we, they killed Stephen illegally. Somehow got away with that. Paul was an expert with the law, and he made sure that the families didn't come asking for that. He made, he made, the, uh, he made the Romans uh, an offer they couldn't refuse, is in other words. That he kept it all hidden up. And, and we don't actually see Paul himself murdering any Christians. He was keeping his hands 
technically, legally clean of the matter, and yet he'd hold the coats for the guys that stoned Stephen. He would, he would be there ordering the, the killing and the imprisoning and the beating of the Christians so that they would stamp out this thing called the way. And he met Jesus a few years after the, the church had been birthed through Pentecost. In Acts chapter 9, we read the account of Paul meeting Jesus for probably not the first time. Probably, and it's not in the, in the accounts, and he doesn't mention it elsewhere, but, but it's probable that one of the highest doctors in the, in, the, in the Jewish faith, this was Paul, one of the most learned men who probably would have made it into history some other way if he didn't become a Christian and an apostle. He was, he was such a, a bright mind. He had probably been in Jerusalem at some point at the same time as Jesus. He, he'd probably met the guy before, or at least he knew of him. And he was very glad to hear that this young, upstart, cult-minded fella called Jesus was now dead until the very day that chasing down Christians on his way up north to Damascus, Jesus appeared in front of him in a blinding light. And I think what Jesus said to Paul that day shaped Paul's Christology and ecclesiology forever. What Jesus said to Paul that day is, you're persecuting me. You're throwing women and children, men and sons into prison and killing them. You're persecuting me. And for the rest of his life, Paul will have this mindset of the church that we are so, you, so united to Christ that to attack the church is to attack Jesus himself. And yet to serve the church is to serve Jesus himself. To build the church is to build the very body of Christ on earth. It shaped Paul's theology, what Jesus said to him that day. And, and of course, it shaped his life. He, he, was he was converted either right there on the spot or at some point as he came to bend the knee to Jesus. In the next few days, he was blinded. Jesus didn't really give him much of that free will business. He kicked him off the horse, punched him in the teeth, basically, with a shining light, blinded him and said, you're like this until you get baptized. So deal with it. And then when, when he sent uh, uh, the brother to go and baptize him, he said, go tell him how much he is to suffer for me. So there's just a, a prosperity call to the, to the love, loving, joyful Christian life. Come see how much you are to suffer. And then that's his life. He, he evangelized for a little bit. Then he went into, uh, 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 got into some trouble in Damascus. He ended up going into, he tells us in Galatians, the deserts of Arabia, and what happened was there that he was getting a personal one-on-one -on -one seminary with the embodied Jesus Christ who came down from heaven to give to him what the other disciples got on earth. That was one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus. So, so he learned all of these things from Christ. He learned the gospel. He learned the mysteries of the faith. He learned the new covenant promises. He learned his Christology from Christ just like the other apostles did. That's, that's, that's what he defends himself as being legitimate. I learned the same way they did. I didn't, didn't get my teaching. I didn't get my calling from men after Jesus. It came from him personally. That was in the desert of, Gal of, uh, of Arabia. And then at some point he went down to Jerusalem. And we know what happened. Like he went into Jerusalem and tried to meet with all of the, the heads of the families. Like how sus does this look? The, the mafia godfather has now said, actually, I'm one of you guys. Can I meet with all of the heads of the families and the important integral Christian leaders in a single room without much, uh, much of a fire exit? And um, I'm going to wear a very suspiciously uh, lumpy vest here uh, with nothing underneath it and no metal detectors, please. Oh, that's what he, let's all get together and let's have a great Bible study because I used to kill you all and I, I promise I love you. And of course, no one believed him. No, none of the Christians were willing to listen to him. He, so, so he ended up meeting with some of the apostles and, and being blessed. And, and then he went uh, back up north. He ended up going to Tarsus where he grew up. That's where he got his education. That's where he grew up. That, that's why he has a Roman citizenship. And so he goes back to Tarsus. He's living there for a while. And then at the point of about a decade, okay, if you ever feel like you're waiting on God's purposes for a while in your life and that he's slow, 10 years after Jesus said that he's going to be a preacher to the Gentiles, that he's going to take a light to the Gentiles to fulfill Isaiah 49, 10 years after that promise, Barnabas goes over to Tarsus and grabs Paul and brings him over to the church of Antioch and says, we need teaching. This is the world's first Jewish Gentile church. We need teaching. All the apostles are down in Jerusalem. We need teaching. And Paul stayed there for one to two years as a teaching elder in the Antioch church. Became one of the most, one of the most uh, uh, significant churches in the New Testament because from there, he went on his first missionary journey all the way through Asia. And then his, uh, that is, 
the Roman province of Asia, not the, the, the China and Japan, Asia that we might define it as today, but, but up the north of the Mediterranean went to Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, and then he returned back to Antioch. Soon then he went on his second missionary journey all the way through Greece this time and Macedonia, back down to Athens and then Cyprus and home. And then the third time he went all the way back through these areas and then uh, 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 landed on Ephesus where he stayed for three years preaching and teaching and debating, planted churches throughout the whole region, and then went back to uh, Jerusalem where he was then arrested, thrown in that prison, and he said, because God has told me that I will testify before a king, I'm going to use my Roman citizenship to appeal to go and give my case to Caesar himself. And so he was taken on a ship, and basically Acts 24 or so onwards is just him getting charged and shipwrecked and driving and all that on his way to Rome. Acts ends, go to the end of, cha of, of Acts chapter 28. Acts ends with him in house arrest in Rome, which is basically where you would just go uh, uh, while you were, it wasn't really prison like in a cell, it was just you were on waiting terms until the Caesar would, del uh, would deliberate over the case. And so at the end of the book of Acts, the very last few verses, this city that he was so desperate to get to, he got to in chains. It says this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all that came to him. So he's basically renting his own house. He's paying for his own food, paying for his own uh, clothing. And the, the only uh, uh, prerequisite and requirement was that he would be watched day and night. Basically, a Roman soldier would be, would be chained to the guy to listen to everything he said, to watch his every move. But he was welcome to have visitors. And so in this metropolis of Rome, the, the center of the empire, here's the apostle Paul right smack bang in the middle of it, renting a place downtown and welcoming in everybody who wants to come and listen to his preaching. It says, he welcomed all those who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. How good is that? The final words of the book of Acts, while Paul is in chains, being watched by guys with swords, is the word loosed, unbound, unhindered. That's what the gospel is. Though in prison, here's Paul unhindered. He was there, and from that house arrest, he writes, to the, uh, to the Colossians. He also writes Philemon to, a, to, a, to, a, to a, an individual guy, and he writes Philippians. Now, some of you are thinking, I thought he wrote some of the old, you know, some of the other books while he was in prison. Not this imprisonment. He goes and he faces Caesar and then is released, and then later on he is imprisoned again, that time more harshly, and then killed. It's that imprisonment at the end of his life in the 60s that he goes, and uh, in the late 60s, like 67, that he goes and writes those epistles. So, so he's in prison for the first time, well, not for the first time, but, but that, that first long imprisonment in Rome preaching the gospel. I, I love to think of his time in Rome at that point when, when by Caesar's orders, Roman soldiers must listen to everything very carefully that Paul the apostle is saying. What a tremendous decree. We know that this was not without God's humorous providential uh, uh, grace because in Philippians, one of the letters he's writing from this prison, he will write in chapter 1, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, right? All of Caesar's top men, all of the guard in the, in the imperial city, they all know this Paul fellow, because you talk about work, don't you? You're not supposed to, but doctors, you go home, you talk about that patient, his weird foot. That strange carbuncle on her eye. You know, you all talk about things. You go home, teachers, you talk about that annoying kid. I know, you say you don't. I've spoken to my teachers since primary school. I know you do. I know you do. You go home and you talk about work. And here's the imperial guard. They're all talking about this poor fellow, the, this guy who was hunted down and kept in prison. And, and he says, it's become no, it's now known among, among all of them that my imprisonment is for Christ. So now you've got... Roman soldiers and the imperial guard sitting over their lunch break and, and cracking a Roman ale and talking to each other about Christ. What's, what's he in prison for this Jesus guy for? Didn't, didn't, Pilate, didn't Pilate kill that guy? Yeah, but look, here's what he's saying, right? He's saying that, that he came back to life and anybody that believes in him by faith alone is forgiven of their sins. What a joke. And the guy next to him just gets converted. This is what is happening because at the end of the book of Philippians... 
He says this in chapter 4, verse 21 to the Philippians. All the saints greet you, especially the people from Caesar's household. Caesar wants so desperately to keep this, this Pauline message about Jesus under wraps so it doesn't spread. So he brings him to, to the center of the empire and keeps people watching him and makes sure that his own servants that serve him also go and serve the imperial guard. And now he's got Christian servants feeding him food, bringing him water, cleaning his clothes and setting his bed at night. It reminds me this the this, this story of Paul sitting there surrounded by the, the well-armed soldiers. It reminds me of uh, Chesty Puller, who was a U.S. Marines officer. And he said to his men one day when they were utterly surrounded, he said this, <clears throat> They're in front of us, they're behind us, and we are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. I think that's Paul. I'm literally not allowed to move. They have to listen to everything I say. I'm in the imperial city. They can't get away from me now. And he plucked souls from the very household of the king of kings that they called Caesar. This is glorious, and this is, this is the life of Paul. It's from this context that he's now writing while he's evangelizing his, his, his prisoners, and all of, all of that is going on behind the scenes of Colossae. Now, just to, to pop a couple of bubbles uh, Paul did not change his name from Saul to Paul when he was saved. Uh, for a few chapters after Paul was saved, he kept on being called Saul. And then he's introduced at one point, as, I think in chapter 13, verse 9 of Acts, as Saul, who was also called Paul. You have to realize that Saul was, his, was the English translation of his Hebrew Jewish name, and Paul was simply his Latin Roman name. So, so it's not as if, I'm sorry if, if anybody's got one of those pictures at home framed above the bed or, or a pen or a mug with this on it, like God turned Saul into Paul, imagine what he can do with you. That's exegetically inaccurate. He was always called Saul. He was also always called Paul. That wasn't his, his Christian name. But moving on. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, now the word apostle technically has quite a broad lexical use. In other words, the original Greek word for apostle basically just meant somebody who was sent. If you were sent by your work to go and get some extra nails from Bunnings, you're an apostle. Call yourself an apostle for that trip, apprentice, whoever you are. Uh, if, if you've been sent by your boss to go down and get some coffees, you're an apostle. Wear that with a badge of honor. Uh, basically, anybody sent to do something was an apostle, but, but he's using it in the Christian, official, authoritative sense. This is where it is a title, not just a, not just a verb. It's not just that he's an apostle because he's sent... He's actually saying, I am a capital A apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's claiming the status of authority in the church. Uh, he does this also in Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Sometimes he'll just introduce himself as Paul, like, like in um, Philemon, when he's just writing brother to brother, asking for a favor, not giving apostolic authority. But here in Colossians and these other letters, he's introducing himself as Paul the Apostle for authoritative reasons. He's in other words saying that I, I'm, I'm speaking to you in my role as job, whose job is an apostle. And the job of the apostles was that they would be those who spoke the mysteries of God. At this new and integral chapter of redemptive history, which we call the New Covenant, just as in the old covenant, when, when at their redemption from Sinai, God anointed a man, Moses, and after him some people, to, to be the mouthpiece for God and reveal authoritative truth from heaven, so also Jesus and his apostles uh, were, were the mouthpiece of heaven. They were delivering new teaching from heaven. And their office finished after the first century when the last of the 12 apostles died, or we should say 13, including Paul. That office of revealing new authoritative truth from heaven has finished. That doesn't happen anymore. Now God speaks through his word. He doesn't add to his word. And what Paul is doing when he says to them, I'm Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he's not just bragging. 
he's in fact putting a target on his own back. He's putting on the teen colors and getting into the ring because in Colossae there was heretical teachings going on. A while back, I was alerted by one of our trusty deacons that there was a bloke walking around in this building having a little yarn with people about some, some new fancy theology that he thought was, seemed to be pretty impressed by. He said, Tom, you're going to want to get a load of this. Go say good day. I was thankful that he pointed me in the direction. I went over and I introduced myself, what, what I don't often do. I said, uh, well, I never introduced myself this way. Uh, if I introduced myself to you this way, there's a problem with you. Because the reason I went, I went up and I said this again, my name's Pastor Thomas. I'm the teaching elder in this church, and it's my responsibility to take charge of the theology. What's your name? What I was doing is what Paul was doing here. I'm saying, hey, this is our turf. You want to talk to somebody about this stuff? I'm the one. He's putting the mouth guard in, he's putting the jersey on, he's putting the gloves on and getting into the ring in order to protect the flock. Paul's saying, I'm the apostle here. You got a problem with Christian doctrine? You got a problem with the, the, the belief and the theology that this church is believing in Colossae? I'm your guy. Come fight me. That's what he's doing. He says, I'm Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. In the, in the first century, well, well in, in the Roman world, in the Latin world, they had a phrase to sort of describe this job of the apostle. Uh, if you were an official apostle of somebody noble, your words were, your office was so tightly related to the person that you're representing that your words were counted as their words. You go as an ambassador and you hit the, the prime minister of another country in the face, you just started a war. Because everything you do is as the person who you're representing. You're there by proxy. They had this phrase, they would say, an apostle of a man is as the man himself. If he has ordained and anointed somebody to go and be an apostle, they would purely and entirely represent the person who sent them. That's the idea. And the title would always be an apostle of so and so. And here's Paul saying, I am the mouthpiece. Everything I say is Christ's words. I'm his apostle. Yeah, we often... Even as, as I press this just a little bit more, I can see some, see some heads turning a little bit. We, we often get into the, the borderline accidental heresy mindset when we start thinking that, that Paul, the apostle, could be wrong. That's impossible. Paul can be wrong. Peter can be wrong. They never spoke in their apostolic authority and ever erred. That's what it means to be the apostle. They're protected from the error that would be passed on authoritatively to the church. And especially to the, to the church throughout all history in Scripture. No errors were made. In, in as much as they spoke as an apostle, they were Jesus' representatives. We might, we might uh, even sometimes, this, this turns up in the way that we go, um, I love reading the epistles. And, and you know, the New Testament's awesome, but I love those red letters in the Gospels. Because that's Jesus speaking. Paul's good, and there's nothing wrong with Paul. And Peter's a great guy, but I really like, I feel more connected to God when I just read those, letters, those words of Jesus. That is to misunderstand the, the, the office of apostle. When you read 1 Timothy, when you read Colossians, when you read Revelation, when you read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, you are reading Jesus speaking. That's what it means to be an apostle. Whatever they said, Jesus was saying through them. That's what it meant. That's how, that's how authoritative this role is, and, and therefore that is, the, that is the authority that he is claiming to himself. <clears throat> and then he says, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is that gentleman that he picked up on his second missionary journey who joined uh, uh, the mission field and, and went with him for the remainder of the time and became a, a very tight-knit uh, 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 helper to the apostle, and obviously he's here now uh, with him in house arrest, probably visiting, not actually himself arrested, and he's here with Paul, and Paul is saying, and Timothy, our brother, has, is also greeting you, and, or in fact, Timothy is writing with me. I'm writing, and I'm here with Timothy, and, and what I love about Paul, just, just as, a, as a side note on this, is how much he boldly, lovingly, trusting the promises of God, he calls people by our true names, right? He says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't, in a false humility, say, well, I'm, 
you know, I'm Paul, I'm, I'm the guy who's killing Christians, and I'm a murderer, and I probably have no right saying this, but look, Jesus made me this, and so I guess I've got a right. No, he just banks himself on the promises of Jesus. That, that man's dead. The guy who killed Jesus, is de- uh, Christians, is dead. The guy who was a legalist and a Pharisee, he's dead. I'm Paul the apostle now. And he says of Timothy, he's our brother. He doesn't say that half-caste Jewish Greek fellow who wasn't even circumcised when I met him. That bloke, we called him limpy because for a few months on the mission field, he, he was still sore. No, we, he doesn't do that. He calls him our brother. Some of you will take a bit before you get that little one. Uh, he called him our brother. He's our brother in the full sense of the word. And he says to the Colossians, he doesn't call them those old false God-worshipping, pagan, confused, weak, poor Christians. He calls them saints. And he doesn't call God just God, does he? He doesn't even call God the judge, who he rightly is. He doesn't call God just our creator, which is true. But in Christ, he says, I'm Paul the apostle. Timothy is our brother. You guys are saints. And God is our father. He banks the beginning of this book, he, he, he embeds it in the reality of who we all are in relation to each other and God through Christ. And he's writing to those at Colossae. So this is the year 62 AD. About, about a year ago at this point when Paul is writing, Colossae was flattened by an earthquake. Uh, so, and they were not a major city hub. They were not a, a huge town. They were not an important place of commerce or business. And so the, the empire didn't really fit in a whole bunch to be able to rebuild it. They weren't entirely um, uh, uh, significant to do that for. So they were basically rebuilding themselves. There would have been many, ta- many parts of town still in rubble and still in a, in, a, in a sense of poverty in rebuilding themselves. In other words, it's an insignificant city. It's a pretty poor city, and in the way that uh, sociology usually goes is it's probably a shrinking city. You don't have young up-and-coming businessmen moving to Colisee. You don't have all the young uh, families who want to build a good life for themselves with a white picket fence going to Colisee. It's probably a shrinking city. And yet God honors the church here by writing to them through the Apostle Paul. It, 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 it is a town that... Um, that was uh, actually visited by, by the fella Epaphras. So the church, the church cannot be more than 10 years old. Uh, this, this church, Hope Church, is 14 years old, pretty young church. There's hundreds of years old churches out there. There's buildings that have been there for thousands of years. This is a church that is 10 years old max. They were planted during that third missionary journey of Paul when for three years he stood in Ephesus and preached for five hours a day doing debates Bible studies and teaching, and the whole area of Turkey, or what it says is the whole province of Asia, heard of the Lord. And what would have happened is that Epaphras, who we hear about later on and and briefly uh, um, now, as I explain it, Epaphras would have been a businessman who was going to Ephesus for work, but he lived back east in in the Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis area. Because what history tells us is that uh, Epaphras went back and planted a church in each of those. We hear about Laodicea in Revelation. We don't hear about Hierapolis by name anywhere in the New Testament in terms of a letter being written to them. And we hear of Colossians now. So, so at some point during that two and a half year period, Paul's preaching, he's teaching, and some guy gets saved and starts digging into the teaching, starts becoming a, a, an exemplary Christian man, and Paul sends him back over to his home area to go and plant these churches. That's what's happened about 10 years ago. His time in Ephesus was 52 AD. At this point of writing, it's about 62 AD that he's writing to the Colossians. And, And there's some kind of false teaching. The thing about identifying the false teaching in the New Testament that it is often addressing is that you have to read behind the scenes and in between the lines. You have to figure out what the heresy is by what Paul says against it. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. And the Colossian heresy, there's, there's wild debate about what the Colossian heresy is. What exactly was it? And basically there's, there's four definite streams and exactly what the end point was, we don't know. But there's four things going on at Colossae in some degree. There's some level of Jewish legalism finding its way into the church. 
So there's, there's going to be things that Paul writes about in Colossians about, about do not taste and do not touch and do not handle and people adding laws and regulations and new moons and Sabbaths and, and he's going to push back against that. So there's some Jewish legalism sneaking in. There's also going to be some element of worshipping angels, which is probably the, the Iranian Jewish mindset. Uh, in the first century, some of the, the, the weird sects of Judaism had started to, because the angels delivered the Old Covenant, and because the angels are a minister of fire, they actually started giving some, some worship towards the angels, and that's brought up. But because history tells us that there was a large population of Jews in the area of Phrygia, which was around Colossae, and those Jews were terribly syncretistic, in other words, they didn't mind adding some idolatry in, they didn't mind mingling a little bit of paganism on top of their, their Jewish dessert. They didn't mind doing that. Uh, so also what we're finding is that, is that there's a weird amount of pagan worshipping of deities. Some of the Roman gods, some of the Greek gods, some of the, the idea that became the Gnostic view of Christianity in the next 200 years is that, is that there's one ultimate God. There's one ultimate God, and, and he's too pure to create matter, creation, us. He would never do that. Matter is evil. So what he did, I mean, he just created something in his likeness. He created a God. And it was a little bit less perfect than the first God, but, but still nonetheless a God. And then that God created a God, and that God created a God, and that God created a God. And, and so it went for a thousand generations or so. There's, there's this play Roma, they called it. The, the multitude of gods that are going down in this beautiful uh, generational manner. And then you get to this one God, Jesus who was evil enough, or, or some of them call him Satan or whatever, but they, they mingle it and say, now he was so far removed from divine perfection that he thought it was a good idea to create life in matter. And so this whole world is his fault. That's the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And so the pagans would say that it's great to have your, your God. That's fine. But worship all the others. That's a bit rude. All right? Don't, 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 don't just worship one of them and, and ignore the rest. We need to worship all of them. And then also mixed into this was the idea that we, we can access full divine truth through trances and drugs and visions and entering into sexual acts in the temple because we need to enter into all of this, this beautiful, mysterious philosophy. And so Paul is going to address this sort of mixed up, confusing situation by writing the book of Colossians. Now, remember Epaphras. He's obviously not a dull guy or a coward or a guy who's not given to study if Paul, the freaking apostle, doesn't mind sending him 180 kilometers to plant churches. He's obviously a bright guy. However, at this juncture, he sees it necessary to come to Paul in person and ask him, please write them a letter, I'll take it back. So, so maybe if Epaphras is just, he's struggling with this and he's wrestling with this and he's meeting with people and he's explaining how it's wrong and he's, he's, he's teaching good theology. And like, this is great, Epaphras, thank you. But there was just something about the heresy that kept on butting up. And, and Epaphras is wondering, how do I, how do I weed out this, this understanding, this misunderstanding that's finding its way in? And he goes to Paul and Paul does the great apostolic thing to write the doctrinal truth, but he just takes it back to basics. You know why you don't need the Jewish laws, Epaphras? You know what you need to tell them? You know why they don't need all the extra help to be extra holy? Because they're in Christ. They have all the righteousness they could possibly be. They just need to put on Christ. That's what he'll say in Colossians 3. He'll speak about the, the worship of angels. And he'll say, what an idiotic thing to do when you have Christ, the only one worthy of all the worship that can be given. Just worship Christ, Epaphras. Tell him that. When, when, the, when the pagan mindset is coming in and saying that, that we need to worship the, the fullness of deity, not just one sliver of divinity, you tell them that the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in flesh in Christ. That's what he'll say. And when, when they're tempted to tell you that there's other portions of philosophy and other portions of wisdom out there that we need to access through trances, you tell them that all of the divine knowledge and wisdom is in Christ, Epaphras. He takes Epaphras right back to basics, writes this wonderful letter, and sends him back to the Colossian church. Christ is sufficient. 
And so he writes and says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I love, I love that they're at Colossae, but they're in Christ. He's giving two geographies at the moment. Your physical and your spiritual geography. You're in Logan, or you're at Logan, but you're in Christ. You're, you're here, but you're in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand. And the reason we know that this church is not altogether given to the error and, and jumping into the heresy is because Paul calls them faithful brothers. So likely, they're trying to push back against it. They're just slipping. They, they don't want the heresy, but they're confused about what the heresy is or is not. So they're the faithful brothers. But the, the way that he speaks to them by saying this, that they are saints in Christ, is such an insult to the heresy. To the heretics and the false teachers, or the people who are trying to add to Christianity, add something on top of Christ. When Paul just calls them saints in Christ, he undercuts everything about the extra teaching. This is, it. This is how heretics and false teachers always start. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian too. We just call ourselves, you know, Christians of the Latter-day Saints of whatever, whatever. Oh, you're Christian. We're Christians too. We just call them Jehovah and we're witnesses, but that's all good. We're, we're Christians too. Oh, you call yourself Christian. Well, we're Christian too, but would you love to join with us on a very secret online Bible study? And would you like to meet us in the mountains as we seek after visions? No heretic ever comes to you and starts saying, Jesus is bad. Get rid of him. They always say, you're a Christian. We're Christians. You've got Jesus. We love Jesus. But there's more. In fact, here's a little tip for you. Don't be the guy or the gal who knows so much Bible that you require more than a simple profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Can they define justification? What's their view on predestination? Do they know what the true marks of a church are? They're probably not saved. No, don't be that guy. Do they know and love Jesus that he died for them? But as soon as they start convincing you, you don't need to ask any more questions because I love Jesus and he died for me, you've probably got a false teacher on your hands. Or you've probably got a little uh, invitee, a little uh, recruiter from a cult on your hands when they keep on saying, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, let's don't go deeper than that. Just come along to our study. Just come along to the meal. Just come along to our camp that we're doing. That's always the issue. Any true, knowledgeable, born-again believer who knows the Word of God and delights in it will love to talk about more about their beliefs and go deeper and deeper into everything else we believe other than just the statement, I believe in Jesus and love him. Do you? So that's the trick. That's side note. But, but in Colossae, they were saying all of these things. That Jesus is such a good start with our knowledge, and, and I want to take you deeper into divine knowledge. No, Paul's saying. They know Christ. They have all the knowledge they need. They're faithful saints. The, well, well, we just want to show you what the fullness of living the Christian life looks like with, with all of these Old Testament uh, Jewish laws and numerical codes in the Bible and all the, the sacrifices that can hell. Like Jesus is great as a foundation, but there's more. No, they are saints. They are holy ones for no other reason than that they are in Christ full stop. Well, we, we love you guys, and we love that you worship Jesus, but there's just other things to do to be faithful worshipers. And Paul says, no, they are faithful brothers in Christ, no other condition needed. Well, it's great that you guys worship, but there's also these other ways to, to, to sort of dive into the angelic beings. And he says, no, stop, back off. They're faithful saints in Christ. That's all they need. They are in Christ. They have everything. And here's the point. If you have Christ by a spirit-given faith, if you know the gospel, that he lived as one of us, but perfect, that he died in our place and for our sins, that he rose triumphantly to defeat death for all those who believe in him, and that God raised him back up to heaven to rule and reign, if you know that, if you believe that in your heart, then you are in Christ, and being in Christ, there is nothing that anyone else out there can ever offer you. There is no such thing as a great message if it's Christ plus something. Christ but something. Never, ever fall for the bait. 
And when he says that they are in Christ, he is, he is saying, if we take the whole letter together, he's saying glorious things. Because he's saying, you saints, you're in Christ. But what does he say about Christ? About Christ in this letter, he will say that he has the kingdom of God's beloved son. Of Christ, who we are in, he will say that he gives redemption and forgiveness of sins. He's going to say that the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. He's going to say that he is the creator of all things, that he is the authoritative Lord, that he is the head of the church, that, in, that he in all things is preeminent. He is the hope of glory. He is the fullness of knowledge and wisdom. He is the substance of all of God's historical promises and purposes. He is seated at the right hand of God. To say then that we are in him is to say of people the most extraordinary, significant things that could ever be said. You are in that Christ by faith and faith alone. So he is writing, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And of course, he closes by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. If God is not your Father, you have none of his grace and none of his peace. And if you have not believed on his Son, Jesus Christ, then he is not your Father. Jesus himself said, and the apostles confirmed through their writings, you cannot know God if you reject Jesus Christ. And you do not know Jesus Christ if you also worship other gods. You cannot say you're in Christ if you're living in your sin and not repenting and drawing near to God's grace. You're not in his grace. You don't have his peace. God's not your father. That's the reality. But if you are in Christ, then you have God's grace. The grace that sent Jesus to the world to live in our place and die for our sins. The grace that would, that would willingly abide by the law and transfer our sin to Jesus, take his righteousness and give it to us. All of that, it's done justly, it's lawful, yes, but it was a grace. Grace doesn't break the law. Grace fulfills the law for our sake. And God in his grace has redeemed and forgiven and atoned for sinners in Christ. The, the grace that he's talking about here is the grace that transfers you from your sinful lifestyle, from your guiltiness and your enmity into the kingdom of Jesus. So that you have righteousness, you have forgiveness, and you have a powerful Christian life empowered by the Holy Spirit to live. That's the grace he's talking about. Grace to you. And if, and if you're in that grace, if you've received that grace by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have peace. This is experiential. It, it's objective in the sense that it's ultimately true. It's subjective in the sense that it's applied to you and you can personally know it, is that you have peace with God. He used to be your most fearful enemy. He used to hold you condemned under the law. He used to have his eyes towards you in hatred for your sin, but having pursued you, he now has peace with you through Jesus Christ. He was your enemy. He is now your father. Peace from God, our father. We have peace with our conscience that we can go to bed at night having confessed our sin, having striving after Christ's likeness. We know that our sin will not condemn us, that our, our souls will not be found in the pit of hell. We are in Christ. We have peace. And being that the only condition... The only condition to have God's grace and his overflowing peace is to be in Christ. So everybody who has nothing else to boast, no good going for you, terrible background, horrible life, if you have Christ, you have God's grace and peace. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have his grace and peace. The world offers all kinds of colors and shades of grace and peace. There's the psychotherapy grace and peace where you just need to work through your past trauma and, and revisit and re-raise your inner child and yourself and heal your emotional wounds and, and then you'll find grace and peace. There's the new age nonsense of, of grace and peace where you just need to get back into the synchronization with the oneness of the world and, and, and put away desire and find yourself engulfed into the, into the infinity. There's that grace and, and peace. There's the grace and peace of legalism that is going to tell you that, that if you can be good enough, you'll earn God's grace. 
if you can be righteous enough, then God will give you his peace. There's, there's the grace and peace of antinomianism that'll say, there's no such thing as a law that matters. Live how you want and just, just live in the grace. Just, just assume you've got grace and live how you wish. Just, just go to bed at night, tell yourself there's no hell, you'll have peace. But all of those are a kind of grace and peace that lead you to the grave and into hell. The only grace and peace that is true grace, that is true peace, comes from God, the Father of grace and peace, and it comes alone through Jesus Christ, exclusively. If you have him, you have God's grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have made your grace and your peace available, that you have poured it out not in half measure, but in fullness, in fullness, Lord God, onto your people in Jesus Christ. Lord, each of us come to you now and we, and we bring our hearts to your throne that you call the throne of grace and we confess of our sin. And we know we are imperfect and we know we have broken your law and we have wasted time and we have, we have spurned your blessings and we have thought lowly of the church, which is your body. We have, we have blasphemed your name and your word by, by treating religion as our own personal preference instead of the, the command of the holy God. We've, we bring all of these things and we know that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, we are saints, not for what we've done, but because of what we've received. And I pray, Lord God, therefore, that we would be filled with the joy of believing, that we would be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who we are in him so that we might live an effective Christian life. Lord God, would you make this church known? Would you make us known for making much of Jesus? Would you, would you let us not be known in any other way than the fact that we uplift Jesus Christ to each other and to the world for your glory. Father God, I pray that we, like as Paul will, will come to pray in the book of Colossians, as Paul wrote the book of Colossians with, your, with the intent and the motivation that the people might be secured in Christ and live out the reality of all, of that, all that the gospel is, would you make us holy saints who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and anybody in this room who is outside of Christ, who does not have faith, who has until now had a religion that is Christ plus something else, that they've still been relying on themselves in order to get into the kingdom. Father God, would you rebuke them? Would you break their heart? Would you shatter their souls and their self-confidence? And would you give them faith that believes on Jesus alone? Would you add souls to our number this very night? For it is in the Lord's Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.